today what we're going to look at is one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, abused scriptures in all of scripture, and that's judge not lest you be judged. Judge. Anybody ever been in front of a judge before? Come on, admit it. Admit it. Admit it. Yeah, I knew you're all felons. I knew it. All right. I, I ended up being in front of a judge when I was 16 years old. 16 years old. Uh, I got my license. I, was, I got my, uh, uh, what is it in the state of Illinois before blue slip? Permit. Permit. I got my permit when I was 15 years old. And in the state of Illinois, back in my day, you could drive within uh, like one of your parents when you had a permit. And then when you turned, uh, after you had that for a while, you got your blue slip, and then you could drive with someone who had their license for over a year, all right? So I, I had this girl who was my friend, who's my girlfriend, actually, and she lived like a block and a half away from my house, and my mom had gotten purchased this old beat-up car for me, and uh, I went to go one day to pick her up a block and a half, just a block, really, down the street, and I thought, because she was going to ride with me someplace, and I could drive. So I come around the corner, and you're, you're that young, you drive a little fast. And I went around two corners, and I know I popped in the third gear when I ran around the second quarter. And I, I was young, and I was dumb. And, and, and um, I remember driving down the street, and I saw this red truck in my girlfriend's driveway. And I thought, that could be her ex-boyfriend. You ever had one of those feelings, like, creep up in you? And then I see this figure, and he was, like, three years older than her, and she was two years older than me, so he was in college. And I was a lowly sophomore at that moment in time. And uh, I remember looking up, and I saw this figure at the door. And I'm thinking, that's him. And I'm driving, and I'm looking at him. And guess what I'm not looking at? The road. And guess what I crashed into? A parked truck. A Ford F-250. And I remember, I sat there, and I'm like, my mom's going to kill me. I remember that feeling in my hand, my, in my, crept up in my heart, and I remember going, I don't have my license yet. And what happens if you don't have your license and you get in a wreck like that? You don't get it. I mean, you have to wait till you're like 18. And in, in a 16-year-old, that is like purgatory. It's like, I need to be prayed out of this. And I remember standing there by this wreck, and I totaled the car, and I was fine, I was okay. And, and of course, in a small town where I was from, that's entertainment. So the whole town is driving by, you know, grandpa and grandma. Look, look at that little idiot. Isn't that great? That's oh, another kid, you know, being dumb. And I felt so stupid. And I, I remember the, the police officer gave me a ticket for driving too fast, not for not having a license yet. And I was terrified I wasn't going to get my license. And, and they told me I had to appear before a judge. There's nothing more terrifying to a 16-year-old to go in front of a judge. I mean, the dread, the fear. I mean, this is adult now. You're grown up. You're going for a judge. And I remember going, I, I, I remember I went and got my license six days later. And you get your picture taken. And I, I was trying to be so like, <laughs> like have mercy uh, on my soul. And I, I got the picture taken. I got my license. And my, I didn't have a car, though. It didn't really matter. And so I had to go to the, the judge. And I remember walking into the courtroom and this fear of dread went over me. And I, I'm wearing a suit. And I, I was... Your Honor, I was going to be respectful. I knew that I had to, uh, he was in charge of this court. He could determine what happened to me next. That's a dreadful feeling. Fortunately, he, he let me off the warning. He had mercy on a very dumb young man. But I think many of us are a little bit like that judge in that we, we like to control what goes on 
who's in, who's out. We feel like we have these arbitrary standards that we possess that determines whether or not people are accepted or not. I mean, we set ourselves up as judges and juries. Do we not? Anybody remember the TV show, The People's Court? Remember Judge Wapner? Okay, for those that were born before 1980, Judge Wapner it was this judge, and people would come into this court, and he, he controlled what was going on. And he was the one that these people came to him, and he determined whether they were right or they were wrong. And when we, in, in truth, in our heart, when we really get into it, we determine who's good and who's bad. We make judgments all the time, do we not? But see, God's saying, no, 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 I don't want you to be the judge and the jury. I, wanna, I want you to be the judge and the jury. I want you to not take that that desire that we have, that inclination to say who's wrong and who's right. And I'm not talking about sin now. I'm talking about in our lives. See, we have people that come at us, they say mean things to us, we say mean things to us all the time, do we not? I mean, think about scars that you have in your life. Someone in your life, it could be a, a, a parent, could be a grandparent, could be an aunt, could be an uncle, people that were judging you wrongly. How did that make you feel? Or a boss. You ever had a boss misunderstand what you were doing and judge you and put you down? Or, or a teacher? Or, or anyone, for that matter. Could be a spouse. Could be a close friend. And how did that make you feel? Because, see, you you've suddenly felt like you were in their courtroom. And they were the judge. Because they had set themselves up as a judge. Now, Jesus has some words for us today. That he doesn't want us to have a people's court. But he wants us to go to him and give him that power of definition. And understand that we are to give him that power of definition in how we speak to other people and how we evaluate them and use that same criteria when they are evaluating us. Because, see, we have a tendency to give other people the power of definition and our happiness is controlled by them. And God says to us, no, I'm the one that controls that. I want you to come into my courtroom and I want to make sure that you're not only in my courtroom for your the, the interactions that you have in that how you determine whether someone's in or out or right or wrong, but how people determine whether you're right or wrong. So today we're going to go into this text and see what it means, how we are to live, how we are to judge. Does it mean that we can never make judgments, ever? Is that what it refers to? What's it mean then? Because people say it all the time. People that will never, ever have been in church, never opened a Bible, and they'll say, judge not lest you be judged. So what do we do with this scripture? And how do we apply it? That's what we're going to look at today. So hopefully you have a Bible with you. If not, stick your hand up and uh, the ushers will make sure that you get one. I'll give you a page number so you can turn and follow along. But before we go any further in our message time, let me pause for a moment of prayer. Father, as we come into your presence today, help us not to look at the people's court or create our own people's court. But Lord, help us to come into your court, to see the truth of your word, to let it penetrate the hardness of our heart. May your word flood the plighted and drought soil that covers us. May we be awoken to the reality of who you are, you are and how we might behave as citizens of this otherworldly kingdom. Lord, give us discernment, give us wisdom, and peel back the layers of unbelief that we might truly embrace your heart and your word, that we might apply it to our lives and go forth changed. Ask your blessing on this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, 
Let's jump right into our text. And I really want you to be open to your Bible. If you have one or scrolling on your phone or look off somebody else. Because we're going to be going really digging in uh, and tearing apart this text today. Our text begins with, judge not lest ye be judged. Now it comes from a Greek word called krenete. And, and, and the way that the Greek works is that there's certain tenses and moods and voices that are involved. Remember all that from your English high school English class that you absolutely hated? Well, it pays off when you're looking at scriptures because we see here it's in the present tense, meaning right now you should not be judging, not, not just in the future, not in the past. Right now you need to stop what you're doing. Quit judging people. Now, it's, in the, it's, it's a command. It's in the imperative mood, and it's in the active voice. It always needs to be done again and again and again. It never stops. Now, the word krenete means to judge. It's a habit of, here's a big word that I found in studying for this message, sensoriousness. Sensoriousness. And it means being hypercritical. Hypercritical is what it's referring to. Sharp, unjust criticism. The word is almost synonymous with condemnation. Putting people in their place to control them and to condemn them. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Now, he commands us to stop judging, but it's more than that. It means stop unjustly criticizing or being hypercritical. It's an attitude that we have, and he wants us to quit, to cease. Now, the next words are, that you may not, or that you be not judged. And it's in the aorist tense. It's a subjuncting move. It's a wish that something, a wish or want to occur, but it's in the passive voice. Meaning that if you do this in the future, you will not be judged according to this same criteria. Because if you do judge in this way, that same criteria will be applied to yourself. So what I want us to do, first of all, and give me my first point here, we need to be exploring Jesus' command. This is a command. We're going to explore this together today. We're going to break this down. We're going to draw it out because it is a command to stop judging. And unfortunately, we as Christians can be some of the most judgmental people on the planet. However, are we not to call people that are in sin and call it sin? What about that? Is that not a judgment? What do, we, what do we need to do about that? I mean, we're in this tolerant society now that says that no one can say that's wrong. And if you say that's wrong, that's wrong. Well, it's a total myth. You're saying that I'm wrong, but wait a minute. Now you're not being tolerant of me. It's a myth. See, people are tolerant except one thing. What is it? Intolerance. Intolerance. But people don't want anyone to say that this is right or this is wrong or he is bad, he is good. I mean, even on school playgrounds, you can't play dodgeball anymore. can't even play tag in some places because the kid can't feel like they're being it and marginalized. Right? We created this completely tolerant society, and yet we have violence going on everywhere. I don't get it. We're so concerned about safety, and then we have this complete opposite extreme of everything else going on. And how are we as Christians to behave in the midst of that? How are we to act? Are we to call people to repentance? And if we do so, is that not a judgment? How do we deal with that? Am I not judging whether they're not, they're sinning? See, how do we interact with this? That's why we need to explore this command. Now, what is Jesus saying here? I want us to look at verse 6. As we, we go through this, we're going to see something. Verse 6, you see... Do not give to dogs what is holy. 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack, attack you. Now let me ask you a question. Jesus says, don't give to dogs what is holy, or to pig, pigs what is sacred, right? So, how can you know what a pig is or a dog is unless you make a judgment? I can't, how do I know that's a pig? I have to make a judgment, right? See, what Jesus is saying here, or not saying, is he's not, this is not meant to be a prohibition of decisions. We make judgments all the time. If you're a parent, you make judgments. Is that class going to be safe for my kids? Do I trust the people that are around right now? Do you not? We all do. We make judgments every day. We evaluate. And people say that they don't do that, they're lying. We all make judgment calls every moment of every day. So we have to say, what then is Jesus saying? Well, he's talking about not being hyper or hypercritical to recognize that we have a propensity to be judges in our own courtroom and not making judgments as to protect or anything like that. But we have this fascination of calling out people's faults to control them. It's being hypercritical. Do you know someone hypercritical? Maybe you're hypercritical. You're never satisfied. And, and I struggle with this. My, my interaction, my first, my first reaction is to be critical rather than be the encourager. I have to balance that. I have to work on it. We all do. But what do we see here? I mean, we, we see it's not a prohibition of decisions, but it is a recognition of our sinful disposition. It's a recognition of our sinful disposition, meaning that we have this tendency to not just make judgments on everyday things, but to go even deeper, to judge motives and to impute motives to people. I mean, we have this tendency to really distort this. It's a recognition of our sinful disposition, that we have this tendency to be hypercritical. Now, let's take a moment to look at our text and ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus command us not to judge so harshly or so critical? Why? We see that the words judge not are in the present imperative, meaning it's a continuous command. But when it's coupled to the word not, it comes together to forbid even an attitude. And I, I think the first thing that we need to do is recognize that we have critical attitudes. To recognize we have a critical attitude. We have a tendency to do this all the time. And you know where it's really bad? Junior high. Junior high. Everybody's in, everybody's out. They're not. They do this, they do that. You're ugly, you're not. And there's not a filter on them. And how to discern. And it's all about making those judgments. And, and the reality is, is we still make those judgments as we age. We just know how to mask it a little bit. See, we have to recognize that we have a critical attitude. Now, here's how we know if we are critical. And I'm going to go through a, a list of these. We know our attitude is critical whenever we are assuming God's position as judge. Assuming God's position as judge. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 1013. But James chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. It's in the back part of it. If you're not that familiar with the Scriptures. This is James writing, and he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. There's not a Judge Dennis or a Judge Jack or a Judge Christine or a Judge Carl. There's only one judge. It's God himself. One judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Are you a critical judge? Or how about having standards for others that you yourself do not pursue? See, that's another sign we have a critical attitude when we're advocating standards we don't ourselves pursue. Advocate standards we don't pursue. I'm going to keep your Bible open. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, that's page 828. If you have a pew Bible, Matthew chapter 23, this is Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Now, Jesus has a tendency to really reserve his harshest criticism for the religious elite, for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, for those who are really uh, the who's who of the holy, if you will. But they're very hypocritical. And he says to them in Matthew chapter 23, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this is about them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now Moses' seat was the seat of judgment. See, people who would act as judge, it was set up actually in the Old Testament where Moses would come and sit on his seat and people would come and he would try cases. And this seat continued on in Judaism in different aspects, sometimes in different synagogues, in different places where they they would go to the judgment seat, like the courtroom, to get a, uh, a verdict on something, to have a decision made. And Jesus is saying here that they sit on the judgment, Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fa- finger. See, they were advocating and pushing standards on other people that they themselves weren't even willing to follow. Do you do that? I mean, we all do it in some way. I mean, with my kids, this is the biggest thing. Why do you get to do that and I don't? Right? What, and, I'm, and I have to tell them, because I'm the parent and you're not. And now, I do have the right as a parent to do things that you can't do. However, in life, we allow ourselves to do stuff that we want to let other people do. We excuse a lot of things in ourselves that we condemn in other people. Really quick. Really quick. See, this is where we know when we are assuming the position of judge, when we're advocating standards we don't pursue. We also know that we are judges when we are absolving ourselves of the same practices. And I'm not just, this is a little bit different than the first point. The first one is I'm advocating and pushing it on you that I'm not doing it. But this one, I'm giving an excuse why I'm not ready to do it or can't do it. Now, we have a tendency to do this where we look at other people and they go, well, you're not in my situation. You've had this privilege and I haven't. And we start finding excuses for what we do. And this is God saying to us, no, you can't do that. We could all make a million excuses. I mean, we all have excuses for something on why someone has something that we don't. We compare all the time. But we, Jesus is saying, don't do that. There are no excuses. We can't advocate or absolve ourselves from this and give excuses why we ourselves are not doing it. Are we or are we not doing what God wants us to do? Now, here's another one. 
Look at verse 5, actually. Look at verse 5. He says, you hypocrite. Hypocrite, we learned uh, in, in the past several weeks, is a Greek word that, was deno- that could denote an actor. An actor. One who was good at pretend. Matter of fact, actors couldn't testify in certain Roman courts because they were considered professional liars. I agree with that statement. But it's true. Saying, you hypocrite, you're pretenders. And he says that you are not doing, you're absolving yourself from other stuff, I mean, from the very practices that you're pushing to others. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, that's page 940. Romans chapter 2 in the New Testament still. The Spirit, through Paul, says, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, no excuses. Every one of you who judges, there's no excuses, not tolerated. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We can't absolve ourselves of the same practices. Now, here's a fourth way that we act as judges. It's when we are attacking others in order to promote ourselves. Attacking others to promote ourselves. You ever had, some people like to criticize to make themselves feel better about themselves. I mean, we, we've done this, I've done it, where you feel really bad and you don't like that person, you're, you're either jealous of them, you want to be what they want or have what they have or achieve what they achieved, and so you have to villainize them to make yourself feel better. I've seen pastors do this, by the way. Pastors are notorious for this. When a church starts to grow and experience the blessing of God and theirs is not, they'll say, they're compromising the integrity of the gospel, but we are standing true to the word of God. See, and it could be true. I'm not saying it's not, but most oftentimes it's because they themselves are wondering why God's blessing is not upon their church. So they have to bring that place down to make themselves feel better. You know, we have this people in our lives all the time. I guarantee that you, well, I guarantee, probably have someone that you work with that's always criticizing everyone around you. Do you have someone like that? Maybe in your family. I was talking to a young man the other day who's struggling with his weight and his just body image, and his mother is always saying that he's fat. All the time. You're fat. And, and I'm talking to him, I said, well, tell me about your mom. He's like, well, she can barely walk and stand up herself. I'm like, what? <laughs> hello, kettle, I'm pot. See what I'm saying? We have this tendency to do that. We have a tendency to put people down, to build ourselves up. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't. I mean, we have a jealousy complex. We're always comparing. And, and where we're at in the middle of the suburbs in Chicagoland, it's everywhere. Someone pulls up in a nicer car or, a, or has a new house or a better job, and we're always having to, to compete all the time. God's saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that to other people, and don't let them do that to you. 
Don't let them have the power of definition in your life. Don't let them determine for you what is good and right. Go to the Word of God and let that be the determining factor of your joy. And don't listen to those, those naysayers around you. Attacking others to promote ourselves. And lastly, here's the last one in this little section. Also avoiding our own problems altogether. We have a tendency, we can focus on others and helping them and their problems, but when it comes to us facing the same problem, for whatever reason, we can't figure it out. I was talking with my wife about this one day, and I said, I'm really struggling with this, honey. And she's like, looks at me, and she goes, what would you tell someone else to do? Suddenly, I had an answer. I had a lot of answers when it was for somebody else. But it was for me, I didn't like the advice. (laughs) But we have a tendency to do that, to avoid ourselves altogether. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that you have this log, a big giant log. Now think I-beam. That's what he's kind of giving. This is a building, a foundation of a building, structure. It's massive. And you got this big, huge build, I mean, I-beam in your eye. Well, that person has a little piece of sawdust. I mean, it's, and he's saying, you can't see when you got this big I-beam. And you're trying to help other people. I mean, we had a, I had a guy that I interacted with once, and he wanted to help everybody, and he wanted to teach me the Word of God. And I'm looking at his life, and I'm like, dude, tape yourself and then play it to yourself. Because you need to, you need to, you need to, you're not doing anything that you're telling me to do. And, and I'm not saying that we can't talk truth to people, but he had this hypercritical attitude that he had it all together, and his life was a complete mess. Complete mess. We have this tendency to really truly avoid our problems altogether. Now, when Jesus says, why do you see, in verse 3, see the speck, that sawdust that's in your brother's eye? You can see it, but yet you can't notice that big, giant, honking log in your own eye. So what do you do? He says, you've got to first take the log out of your eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So when it, it, all of this stuff that he's telling us, he's at one moment saying, don't give to dogs and pigs. And then he says, don't judge over here. And it can be a little confusing. But he says, you really can't see it when your life is completely out of whack. When, you're, when you have that big giant log there, you've got to take that out first. So what he's saying here, I'm going to show you how you can find clarity in the midst of confusion. That's the next point I want you to write down. Finding clarity in the midst of confusion. And I want to give you some points to help in that. And I'm preaching to myself right now because we all have a tendency, myself included. I mean, I don't have it all together. I'm trying to figure it out myself. Finding clarity in the midst of confusion. And God's word speaks to us. And Jesus says, take out that log. Now, how do we take out that log? How do we do it? I think it's this. We need to practice regular self-examination. Practice regular self-examination. So this is what the scripture is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you uh, to turn with me to that. I think I only have one or two more for you to turn with me in. But this one's uh, on page 958, but 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, you might have heard me refer to this verse in this passage before. This is talking about communion, the Lord's Supper. And Paul is writing, because this is a time where we celebrate the, the death of our Lord for our sins, that He paid the price for your sins and mine on the cross. That He took upon Himself 
all of our suffering, all of our struggles. And that what it cost him for us to have forgiveness and new life. And he wants us to remember that, to reflect on it, to go back to the cross again and again and again. To recall what it is that he has done, because that gives us clarity. And he says in this passage, Paul is writing, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Unworthy. Not worthy, meaning they're not thinking about it, they're just walking through it, they don't care. Will be guilty of, of profaning, the, or guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And let, look at verse 28. Let a person do what? What's a person supposed to do? Come on, what are they supposed to do? Examine. Examine. What does that mean to examine? It means thoroughly explain. Look into your life. Do a soul search. Invite. It's like walking into the airport. You ever had to go through security? And you have to go and you have to take your belt off, you have to take your shoes off, you have to take your jacket off, you have to take your laptop out of your computer. You walk through and you go to the one where you have to stand and you have to put your hands up like this. And they, 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 you know, they check you out all, all over really fast. That's what God's saying. Examine yourself and then check out that slide. Put, it in, put ourselves into God's word that his spirit might search me and know me and know my anxious thoughts and know that all that was within me and then look at that slide, because they take a picture of you to, to evaluate when you do that. And that you get to look at it and say, Lord, what is in my life that is not under the authority of your word? What is it, God? What do I need to, to confess? What sin do I need to turn from? What person do I need to reconcile with or seek restitution from? Because, see, God doesn't want us living in a state of sin. See, it's one thing to struggle with sin. It's another thing to live in an active state of sin. See, we see that within the, the, the Word of God time and time again. That those who live actively in this way shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we can fall and, and repent and mean it in the depths of our heart, and we are forgiven. We experience the grace of God. But when we, we don't repent, when we're not godly sorrow for our sins, when we get content in it, we're under the condemnation of God. Because really it shows that we're not believers to begin with. Not believers to begin with. So, practice regular self-examination. Asking God to bring to the surface any hidden sin. It's this time of intimacy where we commune with God. It's what communion is. Baptism is kind of the marriage ceremony. Communion is the intimacy. The time when we seek to make things right. That if we know we've sinned against someone, we need to ask for forgiveness, then we should. Now, self-examination can be too, taken too far. And that people are thinking only of every single thing that they struggle with all the time and they can't turn it off. Martin Luther was a little bit like that when he was a priest. The guy would crawl on his knees. I mean, the guy would go to confession for hours. And one time, I mean, he would literally walk out of the confession booth when he was a priest. He'd take a few steps and go, oh, I forgot this. And he'd go back in and have to confess again. Finally, the priest says, come back when you have something decent to confess. <laughs> Because he was evaluating himself too much, too introspective. Because sometimes when we get too introspective, we detach ourselves from other people, then we get really depressed. I was talking to a young man uh, just today, and had cut himself off from the body, and he's struggling, and he's like, I'm just embarrassed. And I said, embarrassed of what? That you struggle? That you sin? Welcome to the club. The church is not a place for people that got it all together. It's a spiritual triage center. 
for people that know it and say, I want help, and I want to do what God wants me to do, and I'm trying. I might trip and fall, but I'm trying. I'm trying. Because God's grace is working in them. So, let's go back to our text. Now, this is going to be a little bit of an odd one because we're, we're to be practicing regular self-examination, but we also make sure, must make sure that we are being discerning in our proclamation. Now, where do I get that? Look at verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you, and turn to attack you. If the first part of our passage is not to judge hypercritically, this verse is meant for us to make judgments, but to do so discerningly. Now, the first part of do not give is used as a command to never give to dogs what is holy, set apart, especially in Judaism. You would have different things that were considered holy, different foods that were only for certain priests. This is the same idea. Not everyone could partake of these things that were holy. Not everyone could have access to them. So he's saying don't give to dogs what is holy. Now, for us today, we love dogs. We like dogs, right? We like dogs. Everybody likes dogs. You know, I remember hearing about one director. He goes, I can make any man in America cry. Give me a dog and a good movie soundtrack. <laughs> Very true. Man's dog's best friend, right? Right? I like dogs. Watch YouTube videos of dogs and then the hated anti-dog, the cat. Get this word. I hate those things, but that's okay. Um, but dogs back in the ancient world weren't so loving. Um, dogs then run in packs. They weren't the household pets that were perfectly groomed. They were mongrels. They would wander around just throughout the town. They were scavengers. I, saw, I got a picture of this when I was in India. I saw dogs in different places just running around. And, that, and I'd hear them when I go to sleep, and they get in fights at night. And he's saying, don't just give to these dogs what is holy. Or to pigs. Now, pig in Judaism is an unclean animal. It is an unclean animal. It was despised and put down. I'm so glad that God made all things clean, right? God bless bacon. Love bacon. Having bacon tonight, by the way. Glad I'm a Gentile. Um, so we have bacon. And, I mean, you have this pig, excuse me, a pig, and you're not to give pearls. Now, we have pearls today. You can get pearls where? Jewelry store, right? Go to the mall, get a jewelry store, get fake pearls. Back then, you didn't have fake pearls. Not only that, pearls were extremely valuable and rare. So they're infinitely more, I mean, infinitely more valuable than they are today, or considerably, not infinitely, but considerably more valuable then than they are today. And you're not going to throw your, your pearls out to your pig. Okay, you're not going to do that. And, and what this is referring to is the gospel message. That's the pearl, that's what is holy. This is the gospel message that we don't give. Now, uh, what I mean by discerning and not giving it, it's not that people aren't, aren't, in their qualities, good or bad. What I mean by that is this. I don't care what a person's background is. Everyone needs to hear the message of the gospel. It's how they receive it and how what I do after sharing it, that's what this is referring to. It's about receptivity to the gospel. Now, this is where I wanna, want you to stay with me, and I want us to look at a passage here um, in Acts chapter 13 on page 922. Now, uh, as you're turning there to Acts 13, 46... Uh, I want to read this a scholar named Dale C. Allison. He says, The saying here is an admonition about the necessity to limit the time and energy directed towards the hard-hearted. 
the gospel of the kingdom in 13, 45 through 46 of Matthew, it, the kingdom is a pearl, was to be preached to all, but its heralds were also instructed to shake the dust off their feet when they were not received into a house or town. They were not to throw away wittingly the words of the gospel. They were not to give that which is holy to dogs or throw pearls before or swine. And Donald Hagner in his commentary says, the mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom is an urgent one. And at least by the end of Matthew, it's a universal one. In this mission, everything depends upon the receptivity receptivity of those who hear the message. Although it cannot be known in advance what the response will be, when the disciples encounter resistance or hostility, they are not to persist, but as emphasized in 10, 13 through 14, or Matthew, Matthew 10, 13 through 14, they are to proceed on their way in order to reach others with the message. The issue here thus focuses on the lack of receptivity rather than on any intrinsic unworthiness of an individual's or group. So he's saying that this. doesn't matter what people group, doesn't matter what background that they have, that you're to share the gospel with them. But how they respond might limit how much more time you spend with them. Does that make sense? Now I want us to look at this Acts chapter 13. This is Paul on one of his, um, uh, he's on a missionary trip. Um, and we, we say, see here they encounter resistance. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. We're shaking the dust off our feet. You've rejected it. We're going on. We're not going to spend any more time because of how you have rejected so harshly and in some ways violently the gospel. So it means that we limit those interactions. When people have told us to get lost, I mean, we, we can still testify, but what we're, we're just going to go on. We're going to give that time to those who really do want it. But, I mean, we keep sharing. Don't get me wrong. It's not that we don't share. It's not that we don't preach. It's not that we don't love. We don't pray for. But we're not going to spend as greater amount of time on that when they've so boldly and blatantly rejected the message. That's where we say we give them over to God. And that means then believing God's admonition. That's the next point I want you to write down. See, when we're discerning in our proclamation, this takes a lot of faith and discernment to do so. This is not an easy thing. And when we, we must believe this admonition, though, because some people would like to take this out of the Bible and not apply it. But it's a command. This is an admonition that Jesus is giving us. We trust in his word, and we ask him for wisdom to know when is it the appropriate time to sh shake the dust off of our feet. We need to believe his word and not say that we know better than he does. But there are times where we are to not speak and not share anymore. And then what we do, we must make sure that we are resting in his sovereign disposition. What I mean by that is this. If we're to follow this command to not give to dogs or pigs what is holy or sacred, there is something within us that says they... It feels awkward. They too need the love of God, the grace of God. How can I cut that off? This is a tough love approach. This is when we, we entrust ourselves in the sovereign character of God that he knows best. That he, at his nature and at his root, has given us his word for our good and their good and joy. And we trust in that, even when it's difficult, we, because we are to walk by faith, not by sight. We have to follow his word in that regard. Now, 
or follow his word, period, excuse me. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, we must rest in the very nature of God that he is merciful, that he is good, that he is loving. He knows best. We trust in him. We refuse to convene our own people's court. We place ourselves under his judgment, knowing that he is the judge. We make discerning judgments, making sure that we don't have a hypercritical attitude. But we do stay away from being overly critical or censoriousness. This is the word that I heard while I was studying. And we have to make sure that we are discerning and giving the pearl of great price. Salvation is at stake, but it's too precious to be given to those who consistently reject it by the words and by their lives. Now, as we close our time today, I want to leave you with a story by the great pastor James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, great man of God, that I believe this sums up our today's passage and speaks to the reality of our hearts. He says, in the summer of 1970, I was in Europe. I visited a friend in one of the new high-rise apartment buildings in France that line the mighty Rhine River just across the water from Germany. From my friend's apartment, I looked down on an old-fashioned lock that, it, it, that existed at one time to direct the water from the Rhine across the flatlands of France. At one time, the channel was undoubtedly useful, but as I looked down upon it, I saw that large beams had been used to choke the flow of the river. It was true that the power of the river was still present. It was running on to the north through Germany, that the beams were blocking the channel, now there was nothing coming through but a trickle. The lock itself was closed by refuse that had entered the cul-de-sac and had no outlet. He says, if you discover that a beam is blocking the flow of God's love in your life, as these beams were blocking the river, then you must know that the only solution is Jesus. He is the great physician, and he is able to extract both logs and beams because he can see clearly to do it. There is no log in his eye to hinder his vision. Besides, he will give you a vision of his glory as you look to him that will then be reflected from your purified eye forever. So we have to take the logs out of our eye. We can't be and convene our own people's court, but we must place ourselves under the truth, nature, promises, and plan of God that are found within his word that we might truly discover the joy that he has for us. We must refrain from judging others and making sure that we are the power of definition in their lives. And we also must make sure that we are forsaking giving others the power of definition for us. But we must go to God and His Word, letting His Word direct our hearts, showing us how we might have joy and how other people might see Jesus in us and draw unto the Savior that they too might be saved.